All right, it is the week of May 16th, 2022, and this is the Fight Business Podcast. It's always showtime at BetMGM Sports. You can make your first bet risk-free up to $1,000 when you sign up with the code SHERDOG. Don't let another game day go by without having the ultimate sports betting app in the palm of your hand. Discover non-stop excitement with BetMGM's state-of-the-art technology and dozens of betting options, including live wagers, props, parlays, and much more. No matter what your favorite sport is or how you like to wager, find out why there's nothing like getting a W at the king of sportsbooks. Use the code SHERDOG and make your first bet risk-free up to $1,000. Download the BetMGM app and sign up today. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. 21 years of age or older to wager. Arizona. Colorado, Washington, D.C., Iowa, Illinois, Indiana, Louisiana, Michigan, Mississippi, New Jersey, Nevada, New York, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Virginia, West Virginia, or Wyoming only. New customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable free bets or site credit. Free bets expire in seven days from issuance. Excludes Michigan disassociated persons. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-522-4700 in Colorado, Washington, D.C., Louisiana, Nevada, Wyoming, and Virginia. Call 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help uh, in Michigan, 1-800-GAMBLER in Illinois, Indiana, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia, or 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. In New York, call 8778-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY to 467-369. In Tennessee, call the red line at 800-889-9789. In Mississippi, call 1-888-777-9696. Sports betting is void where prohibited. Promotional offers not available in Nevada. All right, it is the week of May 16th, 2022, and this is the Fight Business Podcast. I'm Rose Patrick Ogier. Today, we're going to talk about Ari Emanuel's recent comments about the UFC. He sat down with a fireside chat, gave some Endeavor updates as well, but really, we're going to focus on the UFC aspects, especially a couple of nuggets of information that were pretty interesting. Uh, then we're going to go over a slew of PFL updates. We've got a new big shot celebrity in investor that is also going to be on the board of directors we've got the 50 50 pay-per-view split we've got the valuation update um, from internal sources we can't quite verify but still an update nonetheless so lots of information we're going to cover there with the pfl we've got our quick hit section which we're going to talk about uh ufc's new nevada license plates as well as uh UFC Paris being officially announced. Then finally, our big topic for today is going to be talking about how culture impacts MMA organizations. We're going to talk about the UFC. We're going to talk about Bellator. We're going to talk about some other MMA orgs and how culture is really shining through in some of these instances with fighters, particularly with comments from Junior Dos Santos and Michael Chandler, how they vary, that type of stuff. So another shorter episode today. Apologize for the lighting. Um, had a bit of a mishap with the brand new house I bought, which I'm super excited about, but the AC unit went out, so we are staying uh, elsewhere for now. Uh, so we will get it all together, but it's just a little rough right now. Timestamps at the bottom, as always. And with that in mind, let's go ahead and dive right in. 
All right. So first up, we have to talk about Ari Emanuel's recent comments at the Moffat Nathanson Media and Communication Summit, where he held a fireside chat. So you should know, unless you're in that particular industry, what this summit is. Again, a lot of businesses in different industries host conferences and summits, and then they'll get a bigger name to come do a fireside chat or be a keynote speaker, that type of thing. It happens all the time, all the time. Um, so in this case, one of their bigger speakers was Ari Emanuel, but this isn't some, you know, Moffat Nathanson Media. If you're not in that industry, media industry, you, you're probably never heard of these guys. I hadn't until a I read this article. Uh, also, again, I am getting this article from Forbes. Paul Gift wrote this. He did a live tweet as well um, while Ari spoke. Shout out to him as always. He deserves credit on this. So um, per this article, uh, Ari Emanuel basically is talking to a bunch of sell-side analysts, which um, sell-side analysts work for a brokerage firm and they evaluate companies they're the ones that give the buy, hold, sell recommendations, right? So if you've got a bunch of ratings where it's like, oh, if seven say sell, three say hold, two say buy, or vice versa, that's these guys. They're where they're basically looking from a big brokerage like JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Fidelity, something like that, and recommending whether or not uh, retail investors should buy, sell, or hold this, and also themselves, right? Like a lot of institutional brokerage firms will have their analysts go out and then if they recommend buy, you know, you'll have portfolio managers who will go out and take those recommendations and actually act on them. So he's talking to a bunch of guys whose job is to evaluate the company from an ideally objective point of view and then give recommendations on whether or not someone should buy, sell, or hold the stock. Um, and so in this summit, he talks a lot about other Endeavor prospects and, and, pieces because again endeavor is a large company he talks about the talent division um some of the content division things like that but he does hit on the ufc a bit as well um and one of the big things he touches on is that he's taken the variability out of it so i want to focus on that and then we'll go back to some other pieces but he says and i quote i used to have this lumpy business and last i checked everybody in that room does not like lumpy business because they like to be protected so he's talking to the analysts right um I took my fight nights and I made my deal. And right behind it, I sat down with Bob Eager and Kevin Mayer. And I said, guys, do you want the ultra premium? I'll take it off direct TV and I'll sell you for ESPN plus my pay-per-views. We negotiated a deal. I don't have pay-per-view now as so I'm not lumpy. I have a set number. I know my number. I think I negotiated a very good deal as to where it should be. And they benefited from it, as you can see, from subscription growth for them. So I don't have any variability. I've taken the variability out. Now there is a little bit of variability there, right? Um, we know that after a certain pay-per-view buy threshold, the UFC does get a cut, but you can tell by the way Ari speaks about this, this was his plan the whole time. And, and we've talked about this a million times on the show. They were trying to go from this, we need a big star to kind of get all these pay-per-views so we can continue this rapid growth. We need to build stars to instead saying, you know what, forget that model because building stars is extremely hard and it's like catching lightning in a bottle, right? You're only going to have so many Rouseys, McGregor's, those types of people. Instead, let's take those numbers that we've had with those stars and get a sweet media rights deal that is guaranteed 
And sure, if we catch lightning in a bottle, that means we won't benefit as much from it. That's true. But we also now have shored up our variability and variable revenue, and the risks are pretty much gone. And so, yeah, your your ceiling is capped for sure here. You're not going to make anywhere near as much as if you if the UFC found the next Conor McGregor right now and pushed him and had similar wave as Conor McGregor did, they're not going to make nearly as much money as they would have under the old model. Probably. But at the same time, they're not going to lose that much money if that happens. They're still going to get plenty of money. And they're guaranteed a set number, which, as we know from 2021 and 2020, yes, they had good pay-per-view rates, but it's pretty variable. And 2021 was their best year ever. So clearly, the new fixed revenue heavy model is working for them. Look at 2022, where we know that Charles Oliveira versus Justin Gaethje was the highest pay-per-view buy rate of 2022 at around 400,000. They are definitely already making their money back by hedging their risk in 2022. So again, brilliant call here. It's made sense to do this and to really just focus in on one particular provider. And when it comes to renewing those broadcast media rights, um, Ari Emanuel was asked about this and Manuel mentions that the deal's up at the end of 2025. And he also says, and I quote, uh, on our international side, if that's an indication, we're up over 100% with all of our deals, which he's talking about the international media rights deals, which we've covered here, how they've essentially doubled. Um, And then there's, and I quote, there's Amazon, Apple, Warner, Paramount, Peacock, all winning sports. I have now one of the majors. I feel good. That's him saying, I believe I have a major sports live sports product. I know everybody wants this, right? All of the new, all of the companies just listed there want live sports. That's part of the reason Amazon went with one, which he alludes to is that I guess Amazon was in talks to have the UFC, which if you remember, I believe it was cyborg versus somebody. I don't know if it was Nunes. I don't think it was Nunes. Um, but a cyborg versus somebody was a pay-per-view and they offered it through Amazon. I think it was only one pay-per-view, but they offered it through Amazon. I remember seeing that. And so Amazon was apparently in talks to get this deal done and then it fell through. And Ari is now saying they're kind of, you know, realizing what they missed out on and they're trying to pick up that slack with one championship. Um, whether or not that's true, we'll see. We don't know, right? We don't know why it fell through. So there might have been other reasons there, but still, um, you know, it's it's one of those things where it it's a five year broadcast deal with Amazon and one, which is a lot. It's not surprising if that's truly a FOMO um, and a like, oh, we missed out on UFC. We can't miss out on one championship, and Amazon is doing that um, now. Uh, I, Paul Gift also says that one championship is one of the UFC's chief competitors. I don't know that that's necessarily true. I don't know that they really compete. I I wouldn't put them on the same playing field, but, uh, (laughs) but yeah, I mean, it's still, again, it's a plausible theory for sure. And, um, and, and Emmanuel even says, you know, I think it just presents an opportunity for us at Amazon is what he says when asked about that. And, when asked if Amazon could be a potential bidder for future UFC rights, the answer was simple. I'm smiling. So, 
he's clearly confident in how things are going, rightfully so. He's really, really shored up a lot of UFC's revenue issues um, by making this all kind of guaranteed fixed revenue. You still do have variable revenue in live event gates and then pay-per-views after a certain amount, but they're clearly doing well. I mean, UFC Fight Night Columbus uh, and, and UFC London recently both you know, smash records. It's not a bad time. It's really not a bad time for the UFC. Um, here's one thing I want to add though, as a caveat to this whole situation. Cause again, I've been saying this for a while now, and I think you're going to see this play out how it plays out. Exactly. I can't tell you, but it is important to keep this in mind. Emmanuel is extremely confident about the future domestic media rights deals post ESPN, whether that's a renewal with ESPN, whether it's Warner, um, Amazon, Peacock, what have you. He's very, very confident right now, as he should be, at least given the current landscape. But three years is a long time. Well, two and a half is where we're at, but still is a long time. And Endeavor, again, Mind you, they had great results for Q1. Um, revenue was up. EPS missed, but revenue was up quite a bit. UFC killed it, right? And the stock still is nowhere near where it was trading even a couple of months ago. Now, the broader market is going through a massive sell-off. If, if you've had your head in the sand, which I have seen some people, uh, right, like, it's not shocking that it's lower now, but there is a lot of debt on Endeavor's plate. And as interest rates rise, as these things happen, like as the market shifts, that's still there. Endeavor has not made enough profit to wipe that debt away. The UFC is helping and keeping them alive. But again, you take away the UFC, Endeavor's in giant trouble. You combine that with the fact of how quickly the marketplace is shifting. We are still, even though there is a broad sell-off and you've got retailers hurting right now, you've got tech stocks getting hurt and VT, VCs beginning to slow their appetite. We're still in a position where overall, it's still a very friendly market for some of these M&A acquisitions. Um, sorry, that's redundant. Some of these... <laughs> Bigger company mergers, um, these these giant companies still looking for live sports, that could easily shift, right? If if for whatever reason, in the next two years, live sports media rights falls, which it's unlikely, but if it does, or if other factors start affecting Endeavor, those prospects might not be so great. Because, again, we're, we're now talking 100% revenue growth in international media rights. That's huge. I'm sure they will get more money. I am sure Endeavor gets more money than the current deal they have now. That much I am confident of. But is it going to be 100% media rights? That I'm not so sure. If consumer sentiment dampens, if we hit a recession because of a hard landing by the Fed with inflation and you know quantitative tightening 
if all of that happens and Endeavor's debt goes up as well as maybe they only get, let's say, 50 or 60% on their media rights deals, that's not a great look for them in the long-term future. It's still a, a plus as in they've gotten more money, but they're almost certainly banking right now on the fact that they're going to see similar or higher media rights deals growth domestically that they've seen internationally because that's what companies do. And, and you can tell by Ari's comments, he's very confident that he's going to get probably, I wouldn't be shocked if he's telling people internally he's going to get a hundred percent or more domestically. And right now, if he, if the deal was up at the end of 22, yes, I agree, but a lot can change in two and a half years. And the market is shifting how it's going to affect Endeavor with all of their debt how it's going to infect the general consumer who is paying for this domestically. A lot of things up in the air. That's all I'll say. I am sure they will make more money than they do right now under the ESPN deal. How much more money they'll make though, that I'm not so sure of. And I, I am still fairly confident they're going to be fine, right? You'd have to have some major shifts for them to actually be in trouble of, you know, insolvency or things of that nature. But it's it's rosy right now. It could easily get dark in two and a half years. That's what I'll say. If conditions stay the same, um, if Endeavor is able to, again, just leverage that fixed revenue through the UFC to continuing paying off debt and they're fine, and you know the appetite for live sports just continues to grow on these streaming services over the next two years, then yeah, they're golden. Or even if it just maintains the same type of appetite, they're fine. They're going to be great but i from a business perspective it is important with some people taking these comments saying oh they you know yeah he's flush like um this this is you know easily they're just going to keep doubling and doubling like no not necessarily a lot can change in two years let's see where we are even in just six months with this market sell-off right um you know, people thought housing would go up forever in 08. It didn't. Now, eventually recovered, but it's all about timing. That's my point. It's all about timing. So, again, I, I view it as favorable, and I think Ari has a right to be confident right now, but just because he's confident right now, don't lock into the belief that they're bulletproof because I am seeing some of those comments out there. They're not necessarily bulletproof at all. They still have a ton of debt. They still have a lot of things they need to get in line and macro conditions are shifting, not so much in their favor. So remember all that. That being said, again, interesting tidbits here and Ari has pulled off a very impressive um, revenue stream growth deal. I, You've got to give him hats off for that for sure. And we'll see. We'll see where we end up with this. But again, not bulletproof, not bulletproof. All right, next up, PFL updates. We've got, I think, three, four, but slew of updates we got to get through here. So let's talk about the PFL. Um, news broke on May 19th, Thursday, that Alex Rodriguez from the New York Yankees, formerly J-Lo's fiance, I believe, or husband? I don't know, um, 
has joined the PFL as an investor and will become a board of directors member. Um, so this story is from ESPN. Rodriguez's investment is part of what the PFL says is $30 million in new funding to back its global expansion and the establishment of a pay-per-view supervised division. The funding round was led by Waverly Capital, investor Edgar Bronf- Bronfman, Jr.'s media-focused venture capital fund. Uh, PFL didn't disclose the size investment made by Rodriguez, made more than $450 million in his career. Yes, yes. Um, yeah. And then it just talks about Rodriguez and, he, and Rodriguez says, and I quote, I love the global reach of MMA. PFL continues to build and innovate for fans, media, and fighters, and there is massive demand in the marketplace. Okay. Um, so this is like a little press blurb, right? And again, it's it's coming from ESPN News Service, and it's through PFL's broadcast partner, so not shocking here. Um, I... It's one of those things where this is much more about A-Rod's name than anything else, right? Um, along a story with this at C- CNBC, um, internally, according to CNBC, PFL is now estimated at about $500 million, which is up $100 million from the last time we heard from internal sources. Again, internal sources can be hit and miss here. Um, I trust some PFL internal sources. I don't trust others is what I will say from my own experience. So I can't really speak to where the valuation is, but let's assume that that valuation is accurate, right? It's grown a hundred million dollars in value. That's huge, right? That's very big. And it's, you know, a big feather in their cap, especially after all the bumpy roads and, uh, troubles they've run into the past couple seasons, right? COVID was rough on them. Uh, the tournament, when they finally got it going post-COVID, did not pan out the way they necessarily wanted. You had Kayla Harrison talking about leaving and coming very close. It's, it's been a rough ride for the PFL, but this year, especially outside of the whole gambling fiasco, um, they they seem to have gotten back on track or more back on track. So... You've got lots of bigger name sponsorships now. Um, you do have, I guess, a, a better outlook than you've had in a while for PFL. And bringing in A-Rod as a board member is, an, is another boost to that. Um, it's much more about A-Rod's name value, right? We have no idea how much he actually contributed. But if you can get a famous mainstream athlete to invest in your company and sit on your board of directors, you're going to do it if you're the PFL, especially because you're still in startup mode, right? You're still raising funding, which when you're raising funding, that means in general, you're not profitable. You're still very much in the red. Maybe you're in the black and it's just, you know, you're barely getting by or you've just turned in the black because you paid off debt obligations, all that, but you're, you're, you're still trying to get more funding and that's your, your actual revenue because you're generally burning more cash than you're making. And it's selling the idea of like, yes, we're doing that now, but eventually we're going to turn the corner. We're going to be in the black. We're going to be super profitable. You get in now. And when the stock goes from $3 internally to 27, 
when we go public and you have thousands of shares, you're going to be so happy, right? That's part of the pitch. Um, so yeah, not shocking that A-Rod is a part of this. If he had an interest in this, um, not shocking at all that they are hyping this up. They're doing a press release essentially through ESPN. Um, said the Associated Press is involved because that's probably the real press release. But yeah, of course, ESPN is going to cover it like PR because ESPN is essentially PR for PFL and UFC. Um, so yeah, not not a bad move at all. It's it's smart move and, and hats off to PFL for getting that done. Valuation again, hard to say where they're at, but I would say that they've almost certainly grown from whatever internal valuation they had before because of their sponsorships. Um, unless a bunch of people pulled sponsorships over that gambling fiasco, which I haven't heard anything. We haven't seen anything. They're definitely doing better than they did the first couple of seasons. You, you've got much bigger blue chip type names sponsoring things. That's always a good sign. Um, you have a renewed ESPN deal higher for, from the original, right? Always a good sign. So I imagine their valuation is up. How much? I don't know. Again, can't see the numbers, can't do all that, but I'm sure it's higher than it was. Um, last thing we should talk in regards to talk about in regards to PFL, the pay-per-view division. Um, so it was announced that starting in 2023, you're going to have a two or three pay-per-view super fights and 50% of the revenue is going to go to the top two fighters of that pay-per-view card. So again, if we're talking about Harrison versus Cyborg, 50% goes to PFL, presumably, although there is the big question of if Cyborg resigns with Bellator and you do a cross promotion, how does that get all split? Who knows? But presumably, based on what we're seeing here, um, you're getting 50% of the revenue goes to the PFL and then 50% of the revenue gets split between Harrison and Cyborg. If, let's say, Cyborg signs with PFL. And, you know, Don Davis speaks about this a little bit and talks essentially um, to, I think it's Spinning Backfist, uh, about, you know, certain stars, you know, deserve that economic status. We haven't been in the pay-per-view business. We're shaking that up. We're disrupting it, just like we disrupted the original MMA space, which, again, if you're using a lot of words like disruption, you are startup. That is startup city. It, almost every founder is like, we're going to disrupt this industry. We're going to disrupt. Yeah. So again, just more reinforcement that this is really the startup type culture. And so you can tell in this interview or this blurb with that, essentially Davis is speaking to other fighters, right? Like now there's more shops where fighters can go, that type of stuff. He is, is really kind of of sending a message out there to fighters like hey come make money here don't go to the ufc where you're going to get a dollar per this many buys and then two dollars per buy if it hits this much and then three dollars right like forget those tiers come be a true revenue split with us and you can tell that's that's part of his appeal it's one of those interesting things where we'll need to see the numbers right but Generally, competitors to the UFC's pay-per-view model have not done well um, recently in modern times. 
Bellator had uh, Bellator NYC, right? With, I think, Ortiz and Sonnen. Uh, I think they did like 150 or 160, which isn't the worst, but isn't great. Um, you know, you've had Ryzen do paper, essentially pay-per-views um, for their English broadcast media through live now. We don't really have those numbers, but, you know, it's a, it's a minor boost. Um, Invicta has done pay-per-views. We've seen pay-per-views. And, and again, they're not that these aren't necessarily making money, but they're not these big generating things. That being said, and I guess I gave it away a little bit, which I'm tired, so I'm going to do that right now. Um, but just because PFL puts on a pay-per-view, and let's say it does 40,000 bots, it's all about the cost of the pay-per-view production, right? It's all about the cost. And where that could split, because ultimately, if you can put on a pay-per-view for, I don't know, 5 10% more than you put on a normal PFL broadcast, and then you sell 50,000 pay-per-views at a certain price point that beats that 10% margin, that's profit. Now, are you going to go out of your way if you're only making 1% or 2% margins to do multiple pay-per-views maybe not but in the pfl's case probably again in the pfl's case even if they're losing money on it as long as they're not losing a ton of money on it they probably will because that's part of their perception they are in startup mode you say you have a pay-per-view division you hold super fights then you go back to sponsors you go back for more funding and you say look we're in the red now but look we're doing super fights it's not about profitability all the time a, it's, again, pay-per-view numbers alone do not show profitability because it all depends on the cost of production. And B, especially for a startup, profitability is, is secondary. If it gets your name out there, if it gets you bigger sponsorships, if it gets you a better pitch to partners and fund and investors, that's worth it. It's like a marketing cost. That, that is a key thing to remember about startups is they will burn money like nobody's business if they believe they're getting the right marketing value to take to investors or to sponsors and partnerships. So this is just a, a route uh, for the PFL to do that. Now we'll see this doesn't kick off till next year. So we'll see where this kind of goes and what a super fight looks like and what the pay-per-view buys are. And it will be telling to see what pay-per-view buy numbers are for sure. But it will be interesting to see how this is parlayed into again, further funding or further partnerships and sponsorships. And as I mentioned before, with Ari Emanuel's comments, the macroeconomic environment is shifting. So it will also be, you know, when when the recession when the recession bells ring, it becomes that much harder to get funding, that much harder to create meaningful partnerships. When money's flowing, oh, it's 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 not necessarily easy. Sometimes it is, but when money's flowing, it's much easier 
to get what you need. VCs are much more readily to take risks. Their uh, partnerships are much more common because, again, they're looking to just keep growing. Recession bells change change all that quite a bit. So that's important to keep in mind with this. Um, we will see where we end up from a macro environment come 2023. But PFL needs to at least have this hit home with sponsors at a bare minimum. Can do terrible pay-per-view buys where they actually lose money in production. They can, you know, get ridiculed by fans and fighters, all this stuff. If they're able to take that and parlay it into good sponsorships or good investments from fund from investors and from funding rounds, then it's worth it. That's their main goal here. So keep that in mind when we eventually do get pay-per-view numbers and have the first super fight. It's going to be a lot about, yes, what are the numbers? Yes, who are the fights between all of that stuff? But also, what does that impact have on partnerships and and just overall strategic plan, the strategic plan of the PFL. Because it's it's going to be less about, yes, these this pay-per-view made money and much more about that. All right, next up, we've got our quick hit section. So you've got the UFC vanity license plates in Nevada uh, where you pay a fee and then you pay an upkeep and you get to have home of the UFC in black and red lettering and then whatever you want for your numbers slash letters. I've seen a couple that say smash uh, or smish rather. And then uh, I've seen uh, a couple that says Ali act and uh, uh, cause you can mess around with it and say like, Oh, I want this and then search to see if it's available. And this money all goes to the UFC foundation, which is a nonprofit that the UFC set up to help with initiatives throughout the state of Nevada. Overall, this is, this is a smart ploy, right? This helps their nonprofit and charitable acts it gives them some social currency especially with fighters coming out and a lot of media coming out and attacking fighter pay this gives them some hey we're we're giving money away and we're you know doing putting money here in our nonprofit to go do make a wish foundation stuff to do 50/50 raffles to raise money for charitable organizations to help the state you know we're doing good things here so I think this is an easy win for the UFC in terms of, you know, goodwill, essentially paying a goodwill cost here. Uh, and I think it's it's clever because I've already seen it, again, gain traction in a lot of ways with UFC fans. And I'm sure hard, hardcore fans in Nevada are going to love this. They're going to say, oh, this is sweet. I love the UFC. I love going to this, going to the fight, seeing all that stuff. I'm going to get this plate. So smart call there. Uh, other quick hit. UFC has officially announced September 3rd as their Paris debut. Um, so they're going to France, going to Paris. Kind of knew this already based on the Dana White War Room board leak. But um, looks like, you know, you're going to have Whitaker Vittori maybe on there as a co-main and then Tui Vasa versus Gone as your main event. I'm sure Gone will headline, right? You can't go to Paris and not have Gone headline. Um you could have Nganu instead, but he's not going to fight anywhere. Um, so, again, big deal. Very, very big move by the UFC, and it's showing their global expansion. I mean, France has only more recently legalized MMA compared to a lot of other countries. 
they've been talking about going there for a while. Bellator has kind of been over there multiple times. Uh, you just had, you know, Chet Congo over there with Ryan Bader, which was, oof. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a logical next step. And again, more expansion into a new market, right? MMA is not necessarily blowing up in France, but it, it's a good market to start dipping your toes into. Europe still has a lot of untapped converted fans. You can always get casual fans, but converting them into hardcore fans and that level of fandom, there's still a lot out there in the international market. The UFC has not saturated all of Europe, right? I talked about this before with Patty Pimblett and Molly McCann. A, a huge part of this is, yes, getting those conversions to hardcore fans, but the other part is getting media rights deals and working with France's broadcast distribution over there and saying, look, here's our event. It did super well. We, why don't we go ahead and, you know, up our media rights and just say like, look, look at how well this did. We'll, we'll come back. We'll do another show. We'll do all this stuff. It'll be big. Yeah. You want this, right? So not, not surprising at all. They're doing this makes a lot of sense. Um, it was only a matter of time. So September here it is. And again, another good business call. It's, it's, it's about time they went to, to France and especially now that they're going to do live events overseas and other areas, France was the logical next step, especially after London, right? Like where else are you going to go right now and really make the biggest impact? France is definitely it. So that, that makes a lot of sense. Those are your quick hits. Let me know if there are any I missed or any others you want me to talk about. More than happy to cover them on next week's show. Uh, again, let me know if you like this segment. But just keeping it quick, high level, about five minutes this time, which is not so bad. Uh, and yeah, just just kind of giving you some business info out there. All right, last thing I want to talk about today is cultural impacts in MMA organizations. So Michael Chandler made some comments pretty recently uh, that got a lot of boot-licking comments, right? Talks about how we just show up and practice and train. Dana White's had 10,000 sleepless nights. Fighter pay is all great, blah, blah, blah. Very company man-esque. Conversely, Junior Dos Santos, who is now fighting in Eagle FC, um, spoke about how the UFC was just trying to take what they can from you and how they don't care about you and all that stuff. And you got this, you know, night and day contrast. I think an important thing to examine here is that while fighters are not employees, they are contractors that are still subject to a cultural pull of their organization. So if you're a, you know, construction contractor or, um, a contractor who specializes in a specific service or deliverable where maybe you're around a couple months with a company and then you're gone or you're doing multiple companies where like you're doing five hours here, 10 hours there, what have you to make up your 40 hour work week. In those scenarios, you're really more a true contractor. Like, yes, you may have to adhere to company rules. You may have to do certain things. Sure. But you're treated not necessarily as an outsider, but not like an employee would be treated. You're not, you know, given the spiel about here's our vision and here's all of this. And, and we want you to grow and you're not giving a development plan, a career development plan, all that stuff. You're kind of just like, yep, we're hiring you at this rate for this amount of money. Here you go. Um, conversely, in a lot of other situations, contractors are hired, especially in like what I do, right. Um, consulting, 
you end up with a lot of contractors who are hired that are not employees because the company doesn't want to take on paying benefits and all of that, but you're treated kind of the same way as an employee. You're not necessarily given a career development arc, all that stuff, but you're invited to um, happy hours. You're invited to team company meetings and all hands updates. You're invited to, um, you know, share and treated like an employee. So you feel like you're part of the team or to help team cohesion. Depending on what MMA or you're working for, you're going to find one of those two scenarios, right? And I've lived both of those scenarios as a consultant where some places it's just, nope, we're paying you to do this, clock your hours. Yes, you need to be on these calls, do this, but that's it. And then I've been treated as though I'm basically an employee and then when my contract ends or uh, for whatever reason, they're like, oh, you're leaving? And it's like, I, technically, but like this was always going to happen. This wasn't like I've gotten fired or I've quit. Like this was, we had an end date, but it feels different. Um, and that's, that's the same in pretty much any industry. MMA is, is not immune to this. It's not immune to this at all. You've got the large organizations like Bellator, UFC, PFL to an extent, um, one championship that definitely have a culture of, yes, you are a part of this organization you are, you know, a one championship fighter. You are a UFC fighter. And, and you're you're treated again, at least from the outside looking in, more as yes, you're a fighter and there are certain rules about what you do and all this stuff, but you're you're gonna have negotiations about your contract that are pretty open and upfront. You're going to have conversations with the brass that are you know, much more like an employee might have, like what Tony Ferguson was talking about in terms of when he, you know, spoke to Hunter Campbell about all of his stuff or what we've seen, you know, um, AJ McKee have with Scott Coker. And not every fighter is treated at this level, right? Like if if you are in Bellator and you're one of the guys that fights on the early prelims, you might just be in for one fight, two fights, and then you're gone. But if you're a bigger name, especially, um, or if you're going to the UFC, you're treated much more like, hey, you're on this contract, here's this, et cetera, et cetera. And again, the more headway you make with the media, the more headway you make um, internally with the brass, the more you get treated as like, yeah, you're you're a UFC fighter. Or or in Bellator's case, you're in the rankings you, and, and you're a bigger name or, or you're a bigger name coming in. Yeah, you're, you're a Bellator fighter. That's That's what you are. That cultural impact makes a huge difference about perception surrounding things like fighter pay. I feel like, well, there's a couple of, couple of statistics to back this up, right? Um, McKenzie's study essentially said that 82% of employees or contractors are looking for purpose within an organization. And this just applies to all industries. So people want to be in jobs where they feel a sense of purpose, where they feel pride, they want to feel connected to it. Right. And, you know, in that, I think it's the same study, which is a different McKinsey study, where organizations that have a strong culture generally get three times as higher output in productivity than organizations that don't have that. Culture is a huge thing. And if you've ever worked in any industry, 
you will see the impact a culture can have. Um, I've seen it most prominently in the tech world, but I, I have seen it in retail and some other places where if you've got that company that's like, we're a family and they truly are able to get you to buy into that. Um, there was one company I worked for a long time ago uh, where I was an actual employee. This was prior to my consulting days. Well, sort of, I was a consultant and then I can, and then I converted to a full-time employee with them and then ended up leaving. But, um, but that place, man, they held on to people and, and it was this weird culture. People left, but man, like it, it really felt like you got your social needs met through this working experience and people would go out to happy hours all together. Everybody knew everybody, um, especially once you got to a certain level uh, or if you were working in a particular department, it was like you knew everybody. You would go out with the CEO and have drinks, the COO have drinks. Um, you, you'd go to dinner. You Everybody would know everybody. You'd chat and just kind of goof around. It was it, like in between working. It was such a different type of vibe than, say, a formal place like um, an investment bank or – um, you know, so like, I don't know, I'm trying to like a corporate, I would assume like a corporate level at a real retailer, like Walmart or target, right. Um, where there's a lot of structure and there's a lot rig- like rigidity and all that startups and tech companies, especially advertise as being like, Oh, we have ping pong tables. We have free lunches. We have all this. We're like a family to build that culture that sucks you in. And I've mentioned this past several weeks when we talked about Apple, when we talked about these, these eco environments, part of what Endeavor is trying to do. But the most interesting thing about culture, in my opinion, is that if you have a strong enough culture, people are much more willing to believe that the company truly has good intentions. And that when they slight you or they do something that you may disagree with from a personal or um, whatever, in, in term, whether it's a, a business view or a personal moral view, you're much more likely to forgive them and give them slack. At the particular place I'm talking about where I worked, lots of people were underpaid. Um, I being the business <laughs> minded man that I am. Uh, I mean, I negotiated a very nice salary and it was significantly more. It was about 30% higher than what they initially offered me. And a lot of people were taken aback that I was able to pull that off. But a lot of people didn't negotiate. A lot of people thought like, oh, okay, they, they have my best interests at heart. They've given me a raise here. That's really all they can afford. It's great. And when I would talk to these people, especially after I left, um, and I had some friends still working there and we'd talk openly about it. They were like, wait, what you, you did, you renegotiated like how, like, well, I just said like, look, here's my number. Like, let, let's talk about what value I bring. Here's my number. And they were just flabbergasted, like, but they didn't, they said they didn't have money for this. And they, you could tell they truly believed that they truly believe like, well, they didn't have money. Like, how did you, it's no, they had money. They always had money you just bought into the ideal they were selling. You bought into the culture. 
And that's, again, part of the strength of culture. And in the right hands, a strong culture can really build amazing things in business. I've seen it happen. It's fantastic. I love that. I, I'm all about strong, successful cultures. I, I truly believe it's a cornerstone of a booming, sustainable business that leads to great things. But you've also seen cultures where you can be extremely successful and employees can be just going crazy. Amazon might be the best example of this. Um, outside of all their unionization stuff for warehouse workers and the horror stories of, of pee bottles and all that stuff, if, there's also just an article out there that talks about corporate Amazon where you have people like literally having breakdowns and constantly trying to cut each other's throats and working crazy hours. And it's just this nonstop competitive culture. And that works. That's worked for Amazon. It's worked for Tesla from what I've read. And, and again, these are all reported stories. I have not worked. I have known somebody that worked for Amazon and they seconded what they had heard in that article. Um, haven't worked anyone or haven't worked at Tesla. Haven't heard about anybody I know working at Tesla, but since they're building the Gigafactory and headquarters in Austin, I'm sure I will know people soon because I know a lot of people applying. But, I mean, again, you can build that giant business and have still a strong culture, even if it isn't necessarily healthy. If you can get people to buy in, you can do a much better job at convincing them that like, no, this is how it is. No, we really don't have the money to do this. We don't have the money to give you a raise. We don't have the money to do this. We've, you know, we had, yes, our profits were this, but now we're in, about to go into a downturn. And so we've got to save profit. So I'm sorry, we have to lay you off, but we really appreciate what you did, et cetera. It is important to recognize your culture bias. It, it is something that I... I try and preach to every younger consultant I know is remember, this is business. If they had to, they would cut you in a minute. If it came down to it, dollars and cents, they're going to cut you in a minute. They're going to protect all of the C-suite members, starting with the CEO and, and or founder, depending on what type of level you're at, you know, into the CFO, COO, all those guys, and then it goes down there. That's part of the hierarchy, right? Your The org chart is not just a, hey, here's who reports to everybody. It's also the level of job security and protection generally. Depending on what happens if you are in a, you know, big company and then something goes terribly wrong, often, if it's your fault, right, you're going to get axed. But often if they need a scapegoat. You might see a couple of bigger names leave all that, but there's a reason that there's a thing called golden par parachutes. There's a reason that people get those where you can be the worst CEO in the world for a year and a half and get the boot. And it doesn't matter because you've got $10 million plus stock options, plus all this. And guess what? You're going to go be hired as CEO somewhere else because you have that experience. Happens all the time. It's important to remember that. Now, going again back to MMA orgs, where does this all tie in? Well, you've got Michael Chandler, who has essentially bought the Kool-Aid, right? And we've seen this before with, with DC. We've seen this with plenty of other fighters. 
who are like, man, you know, fighter pay is all this because they're buying the narrative. They're cutting them slack. They're giving them the benefit of the doubt that here's where it is. Then you have the older fighters who have been dejected, the fighters that maybe bought the Kool-Aid originally or bought into the culture originally, but now are getting kicked out. And the fighter's saying, well, I did all this stuff for you. I'm, I'm JDS. I'm a former heavyweight champion. I'm a big name or was a big name in the company. And I'm now not getting the respect I deserve or the money I want or any of this stuff. And the company says, okay, great, bye. Because the company doesn't care. And it's that realization where like, oh, wow, like this culture was BS. Or this culture was true if you are in the good graces. But the good graces can change at any time. Right? There are very few fighters who get that full, you know, full pass. Um, Anderson Silva, who, again, up until his most recent run, was one of the UFC's, you know, prodigal sons and was and is is a legend in the sport. He's been ragging on the UFC. It's not shocking. We've seen several UFC fighters do this. That's why unions have tried to be started and then they've failed. Tony Ferguson saying all the stuff he's done recently. Yeah, he's he's losing. And that's part of the UFC's culture is if you're winning, if you're a bigger name, if you're willing to step up and do these things, yes, you're going to get rewarded. If you start to lose a bunch, if you you don't have that flair anymore, if, if you aren't able to give them some sort of value, you're gone. They're not going to protect you. They're not going to quote unquote, do the right thing. That's not what business is about. And it's not just the UFC. Again, it's companies all over the place. But the UFC definitely has that culture of we are the best. They have the prestige, which also is another thing that just people don't seem to understand that just because you have a very successful business or a very successful company, that doesn't mean that they're necessarily doing things the right way or they're doing things what's best for you. But the UFC has the prestige, right? They are known or perceived as the top MMA company. So you might endure terrible treatment um, or, you know, crappy opponents or what have you, or not the pay that you want because you're going to be a UFC fighter. It's, I mean, same things happening in, in pro wrestling, right? Like how many WWE wrestling stories do you hear about people getting cut, um, the, you know, where they're just miserable and they're just staying with it because they always wanted to be a WWE superstar and all this other stuff. How many times have you seen people working at Amazon, at Tesla, at, in consulting at one of the big four? I, I can list so many people that were like, man, I went to McKenzie and like I just put up with this garbage because – you know, this was McKenzie or I went to, you know, BCG and it was just crazy hours and it was just nonstop hours. And, and, you know, and don't get me wrong. There are people that go there and love it and have good bosses and it's all great, but there are people that go there and just because it's not a good fit for them, but they say like, well, it's okay that they treat me this way because, you know, they're, they're BCG. Like, man, I gotta, you know, it doesn't work that way. But a lot of people miss that. They just want it on their resume. They want to say like, I work at BCG or I worked at BCG so that then they can go on and do other things. And a lot of times, admittedly, again, you have that on your resume, just like going to Harvard or Yale or what have you. People look at you, oh, okay, and consulting. But I know plenty of people that went to subpar schools 
that are doing fantastic. And I know a couple of people that went to Harvard, that went to MIT, that went to Yale, that are doing all right, but a couple that are just doing, eh. it's like, wow, you went to Harvard and you're just, okay, you're you're just here at this company? Like, okay. And it's not that they're doing bad. It's just like, okay, I know a guy that went to a middle of nowhere school over here that's doing just as well. At least from an outside view, you never know, right? But, but that prestige helps the cultural buy-in too. Culture is extremely powerful in business. It also applies to MMA. Bellator has this different type of vibe and culture where, again, you've got fighters being treated more as independent contractors, or so they feel, right? When when I interviewed Leslie, Leslie Smith back um, for the Body Lock quite a while ago, again, she said one of the biggest differences between the UFC and Bellator, this was right after she made the jump, was it feels more like I'm an independent contractor. Like, yes, I'm working with Bellator. Yes, I'm a Bellator fighter, but I have opportunities to get my own sponsors. I have opportunities to do other things. That's huge. That's very different vibe than you're a UFC fighter now. Put on this Venom kit. Go to these media signings. Sign these things. Like, you're going to be a star at our company. This is our culture. You're a family, et cetera, et cetera. It's very different than Bellator of like, yeah, here, we'll talk about fight negotiations. We'll do this. Uh, you want to go fight in Ryzen? Cool. We'll work to try and, you know, get that out so you can fight in Japan. Oh, you want to go get a sponsor over here? Sure. As long as it's not something that we can't show on TV. Yeah, we'll, we'll sign up. And now we're on Showtime. Sure. We'll figure it out. It's a completely different vibe, completely different culture. And then you have regional orgs or smaller orgs, right? Like Cage Warriors, LFA, those guys where, again, you could be a, LFA fighter, you could be a cage warrior fighter, but it's really all about the next step. It's just like, yep, you come in, you get paid, you do media and you're cool. That's where you come from, but it's not a, it's much more of a, a independent contractor and culture of, yeah, you're going to work and, and you can claim the rank or climb the ranks to try and get the belt and do all that stuff, but there's not really a ranking system. So it's, you know, again, mostly just like, hey, you've you've shown enough here, you've improved. And the whole goal of those places is to be feeder leagues that then push you up to the bigger cultural or orgs. So you're gonna have a way different culture. You're not gonna have people talking bad about Ed Soros and and you know, saying the LFA matchmaker just screwed me here and did all this. You don't have that happen, right? It's a completely different vibe. So that's why you end up with Michael Chandler and JDS. And I don't be shocked if down the road, I know Michael Chandler's a little bit long in the tooth, but don't be shocked if, you know, he ends up essentially at the end of his run in the UFC, whenever that comes, whether it's from retirement or he jumps ship again or something, if he, you know, feels differently. A lot of fighters that are now speaking out right? Felt differently five, six years ago when they were much more in their prime, when they were in the top rankings, they were trying to fight for a belt, do all those things. Right? I mean, it is what it is. It's, it's getting sucked into it. And when you're on the rise, the culture seems to benefit you because you're able to excel. When you hit a peak or plateau, 
and you, or you start to decline, less so. And that's true in lots of regular business too, right? If you are the young hotshot who's rising up through the ranks, you, you know, becoming manager and then regional manager and then director and then you probably love the culture. You probably only have good things to say about the business, partially because that's how you get ahead in a lot of places. But if you plateau where, okay, now you're director, but now you're losing out on promotions to a senior director or to VP to other directors, and you can't seem to get past certain things um, or your performance is failing because you're trying to have more of a work-life balance. You now have kids, all that stuff that, I mean, you may end up souring on it. I've seen a lot of people do that at the big consulting firms. I've seen a ton. That's, that's, they're known for that. And then those people again, go and say, well, I left so-and-so and and now I'm starting my own company or I'm working at a startup. And, you know, I have experience from McKenzie or BCG or, uh, you know, PricewaterCooper or what have you. And I'm, and then they put themselves often in those senior VP or CEO roles that they wanted so desperately at the other places. It's not always the case. A lot of people get burned out with the style of the big four consultants, but it's culture is going to yield two very different results. And culture is the main factor. Yes. Pay is important. Yes. Benefits, all that other stuff. Important perception, prestige. Yes. But ultimately culture drives a lot of this. And that's true for MMA too, because I guarantee if, you know, the UFC really had this awesome culture with fighters where like, fighters really just seemed to love it and you had like you know more things like the fighter retreat and some other stuff and you gave benefits retirement pension all that stuff i think you'd end up with a lot of fighters being okay with less pay because of the other benefits and trade-offs and you'd have more michael chandlers who are bought into the culture so they're going to defend dana white and say no man he he helped build this i just show up and practice even though Again, revenue split is very different than what the UFC has said, what Endeavor has said. They're going to stand there and defend it because they're bought into the culture. That's the main key driver here. So, again, just wanted to throw that out there, have that discussion, because I think a lot of people overlook that just because they're independent contractors, all that. Places like the UFC, Bellator, PFL are going to have an actual culture. Smaller regional promotions, less so. But again, it, it culture drives a lot of this stuff. That's how you get Chandler and Dos Santos speaking about the same thing in entirely different ways right around the same time. All right, and that wraps it up for this episode of the Fight Business Podcast. Again, if you're watching on YouTube, apologize about the lighting. Uh, things, sound quality is all good. Again, if you're listening on Spotify, Anchor, Apple Podcasts, any of that, love you guys. Keep on trucking. Uh, let me know. Again, if you have any questions via Twitter at all day OJ, any of that stuff, I don't see comments on those publications. Um, so hit me up on Twitter. That's probably the easiest way to reach me. If you're watching on YouTube, make sure you hit the like, subscribe, bell notifications so you get new video notifications when we release stuff. Um, but love you guys as always. Should hopefully be in the house. I don't even know about next week, but the week after. Uh, so we'll be fully set up. I will have a better setup, though, than what's going on right now because, again, this was a little short notice. But uh, appreciate you guys as always. And until next time, get money.